Welcome to another edition of Running the Race with Rob King. I'm Rob King. So glad that you're with us. Thank you to all of our uh, faithful listeners and uh, so glad that you're with us. And we just are continuing to go through. We are on podcast 19 and we're going through uh, 1 Peter on the 19th edition of First Peter. And uh, we've got maybe three more, two more after this. Uh, we're in chapter four. I want to start with a reminder of how you study the Word of God in context. You're here because you love the truth. I love the truth. I'm absolutely, I want to say addicted. Is that the right word? Just to understanding the Scriptures, reading the Scriptures. Nothing more important, I don't think, in your walk with Christ as you're running the race than to have your mind renewed by the truth of God's Word. So, a reminder of how to study the Word of God in context, we begin with this foundational belief that God wrote His Word through His people. The Holy Spirit is the author of the Word of God. There's no mistake in the Word of God. We also believe that God meant something when He wrote it. This is important. In the same way that I'm speaking to you right now, and I have a very particular uh meaning that in each sentence, hopefully it's meaningful, it's rational, it's thoughtful. When we look at the context of what is written, there's historical background, there's an author, we endeavor to understand what God intended. So just a couple of things to remember. Number one, don't look under or beyond for some hidden meaning, some allegory, but instead look at the surface of what is written in order to understand it. Think rationally and logically when looking at Scripture. Leave the allegory and mysticism behind. As I've often said, it's good also to have a really good commentary, solid study Bible with you as you look at the Word of God. The best one I've found so far, and the one that I use, the MacArthur Study Bible, I used in large print because I'm getting older, and the New American Standard Bible. And I encourage you to do that as you're reading. You can look at the notes and see uh, what is the meaning. Uh, that God intended. Number two, don't read yourself into the text. What do I mean by that? What I mean is that you're not looking for yourself. (laughs) You're looking for what it says about God in the text. We're looking for solid theology that leads to solid doctrine, that leads to solid living, a renewed mind. This is where maturation happens in the Christian life. In other words, when you're reading about David, you are not David. I am not Job, I am not Jonah, I'm definitely not Jesus. When I'm reading the Scripture, I'm looking for what it says about God, and God is completely outside of me. It's different. He's a different person. Some of you will hear so many people teach and preach about how to be a David. Well, you're never going to be David. You can be you, filled with the Holy Spirit of God, but you're never going to be Job. Some of you are really thankful for that insight. It's just a simple reminder of how to study the Word of God, how I approach it, so that when I teach it, I can teach it well, and that's what I am praying that I do today. Today we're talking and continue to talk about trials. A little background on this. Remember that the Apostle Peter is writing to this dispersed and suffering and persecuted Christians. They've been dispersed because uh, the emperor Nero has set Rome on fire right around this time, in order that he can rebuild and expand his fame even more and build his empire even greater. But the emperor blamed the Christians for the fire. 
The Roman populace easily believed this lie because they'd already had a level of hatred towards this group of Christians because of their association with the Jews and this new teaching. So, with this in mind, let's get into 1 Peter chapter 4, and we're going to get through, let's see, 12 through 19. Here's what it says. 1 Peter, as he's writing here to these dispersed and suffering, persecuted Christians, he says, Beloved, Don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though it's some strange thing that were happening to you, but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because of the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers, suffers as a murderer or a thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he's not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God, and if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who don't obey the gospel of God? And if it's with some difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those also who suffer, according to the will of God, shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. In this passage, the Apostle Peter points out, Four necessary attitudes that we need to have towards trials. We should expect them. We should rejoice in them. We should think about the cause of them. And we should trust God in them. Number one, we should expect them. Verse 12 says, don't be surprised of the fiery ordeal. Interesting that he said fiery ordeal. Rome was on fire, and he's he's saying, don't be surprised, this fiery ordeal. Among you which comes upon you for testing, there's always this reason. The Apostle Peter gives purpose behind the testing and the persecution. The Apostle Peter gives purpose for the persecution. Ooh, that was good. As though he says, hey, it's not some strange thing that we're happening to you. This is pretty straightforward. It it goes along with the teaching of Jesus that said, you're going to have troubles, you're going to have trials, you're going to have problems in this world, but be a good cheer. I've overcome the world. It seems there's a brand of Christianity today that promises that there will never be any trouble or trials or suffering of any kind in the life of the believer. If you go through any trials, it's like people are standing around saying, who sinned that he's going through this? (laughs) Hey, the Bible doesn't know anything of that brand of so-called Christianity. There, there are some that go so far as to say that, that any type of trouble or trial is due to your lack of faith. Yet the Bible teaches that if you have faith as a mustard seed, you're good. You're good. <laughs> I can't find any follower of God throughout all of the Bible that didn't encounter some, if not most, many trials and usually much suffering. Noah, uh, Abraham, David, Joseph, Gideon, Jonah... See, Isaiah, Jeremiah, that's just a list off the top of my head. I don't even have to mention Job. (laughs) And that was uh, considered uh, the first book written of Scripture. Then there's the New Testament, 
with 11 of the 12 disciples were martyred, and the 12th one is John, wasn't martyred, yet he was, I believe he was dipped in hot oil. He was exiled on the island of Patmos for sure. I mean, I don't need to mention anything about Jesus and his suffering. I mean, if we're looking to Jesus as the author and finisher of our faith, as the one we model our life after, then should we be surprised that we're suffering? Uh, we, we should expect to endure trials and suffering, and he warned us that we would. The fact that this truth needs to be defended a little bit should reveal how far away we are in modern, American especially probably, American Christianity. And we've departed from biblical Christianity when we don't understand suffering. And much of this entire letter of Peter is graciously penned to help us know, oh, well, you're going through suffering. It's, it's, it's natural. It's normal. It's a part of the Christian life. First letter of Peter has made it abundantly clear. We can have victory through our suffering. This path of suffering that we're on, we can have victory in it, and we're going to have victory at the end of it. We're going to be with him. We're going to run this race. It's going to be difficult. It's going to have challenges. And then one day we are going to be face-to-face with our Savior. We have hope. We have something to look forward to. I think it goes even further to point out that our victory is inseparable from the path of suffering. Like I've said many times before, it's, it's critically important that we have a good theology of trials and suffering. This would most obviously begin with the idea that we should expect trials. I love this phrase, how he put it, don't think it's strange. In other words, don't be surprised. What, don't, don't go around saying, what in the world is happening? What in the world is going on? Uh, in other words... Is suffering in these trials, they're not by chance. They're not by accident. They are under the sovereignty of God, and He Himself has allowed it to be. Listen, there is no greater peace or solace than to realize that God is allowed and ordained and is in the middle of my trials. We like to think of how uh, the book of Romans declares that God will work all things together for good. So true. But I want to remind you that he can't work all things together for good unless he is in all things in the first place. And he is in our suffering and our trials. This is a difficult truth, I think for most people to realize, especially those who don't understand the sovereignty of God or for those who don't have Christ in their life, when they go through some tragedy, people want to wrongly say God had nothing to do with it, but God, who is sovereign, is in all things, and He is He is in the midst of all things, and all glory goes to Him in the end. I, I recently told a friend who's going through a really tough season, I said, I, I've stopped asking why things happen. I just stopped asking, and, and instead, I look, at, I look to God and I say, what, what are you doing in the middle of this, God? What are, what's happening in me and to me and through me that you are doing? You are doing. As believers in Christ, we not only expect trials, but we completely expect God to be in the middle of it with us. Many times we don't even understand. Did I do this? Did you do this? Did the sin of some other person do it? But no matter, me, them, when you have a surrendered life to God, you can say, God, this is underneath 
the umbrella of your sovereignty. Help me to serve you and to glorify you in the middle of it and be glorified in my life no matter what. Kind of like the three Hebrew children. They said, uh, you know, God is totally able to deliver us from this fire. But even if he doesn't deliver us, we're not going to bow down. And in that instance, Jesus didn't deliver them from the fire, but instead he walked in it with them, the fourth person in the fire. So, So the apostle Peter begins by telling us not to be surprised or think it's odd or strange when we're in trials. That would mean this, stop complaining and stop asking why. But instead of being surprised, look to our Father. Trust Him in the trial. Secondly, the Apostle Peter says to rejoice in the middle of our trials. This is something that James and other apostles have mentioned in Scripture. Count it all joy when you endure various trials, encounter various trials. And I think when most of us think of this passage, we think of the fact that we should just endure trials, but he's actually telling us to be really honest and rejoice in them. This is what the Apostle Peter is saying as well. James said it, Paul has said it, Peter is saying it, but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. There's two rejoices and one exultation. And that's talking about trials. (laughs) If you're reviled for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the Spirit of glory and God rests on you. This reminds me of uh, when Paul wrote, uh, he said he wanted to know Christ. How? In the likeness of his sufferings. When Paul was called into ministry, the Spirit said, I'm going to show him what it is to suffer for me. In other words, the Apostle Peter here is saying that we can rejoice because we're enduring the same kind of suffering that Jesus endured. This is Paul and Silas leaving jail and saying, man, we were counted worthy to suffer for Christ, for the gospel. The suffering we endure is for doing what is right as believers in Christ. When we live a holy life, it's offensive to some people. It just is. It just is. We can rejoice that we're living holy like Christ just like he wants us to live, even when other people don't like it. When we speak out against sin or defend the exclusivity of the gospel, we're going to be hated. The fact, by the way, that we're not hated is is evidence that we're probably not speaking the truth in love. We're just going along with culture. We rejoice, though, for this suffering. This is for righteousness' sake. By the way, the truth is always exclusive in anything. If you ask, is Stephanie pregnant? And I say no, and she says yes. You know one of us is right and one of us is wrong. Thankfully, I can tell you the answer is no, <laughs> but that, that means that it can't be yes. This is pretty simple. What I mean by exclusivity is that whenever I make a truth claim, I am also saying many other things are false. This truth claim alone causes a lot of consternation among people who want to live a rebellious life towards God, never want to hear any exclusive moral truth. The gospel claims that the life and work of Jesus Christ is the only work and the only life and the only death and the only resurrection that can bring us into a relationship with the only God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you're listening to this and you haven't accepted Christ and repented of your sins, I'm telling you, there is no other way. There is no other name given under heaven by which men can be saved. None. 
Jesus said, I am the way. He didn't say, I'm, you know, I'm one of many ways. All roads lead to heaven. No, no, the path to heaven is narrow. The path to destruction is wide. That's what Scripture says. You don't have to believe that, but truth is exclusive. When I say that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven, I'm also saying that there's no other way to heaven but through Christ, and that any other way that claims that they can get you to heaven is not the way. This is exactly what Jesus claimed. Jesus never claimed to be a good teacher. He claimed to be God's Son, Messiah, Savior of the world. He didn't die because he was a good teacher. They didn't crucify Christ because he was some noble teacher. They crucified him because he said he was God's Son. And if he is God's son, he can't also not be God's son. You see how the truth works. Listen to John chapter 10. I was reading this in my uh, devotions today. Jesus said to them again, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. Listen to these courageous truth claims that Jesus makes. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep didn't hear him. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. Listen to all those I am statements. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. He who's a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and he's not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd. And I know my own and my own know me. Even as the father knows me and I know the father, I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will hear my voice and they will become one flock with one shepherd. For this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. And then in verse 28, he says, And I give eternal life to them, that they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. I mean, That's not just a good teacher. Jesus was saying, I'm one with the Father. I am the Son of God, and I'm a door, and I'm the shepherd, and I'm the good shepherd, and no one gets to the Father but through me. Jesus claims total authority and exclusivity when it comes to salvation. The right to have a relationship with God and be at peace with God rests in Christ alone. No other way can you have peace with God but through Jesus Christ. This type of truth claim in a world that claims there is no truth, or the truth is relative, or we all live according to our own truth. This truth will be completely offensive. We will suffer persecution if we live in the truth. Many of us never thought we'd come to a time in history when we would be considered offensive by saying things like, there are only two genders. God made them male and female. And... That is now in our culture offensive to many, but it is the truth. That's just one example. Here's another thing. I'll just go through a whole list of things that would be totally offensive from the Word of God because they're truth claims. Uh, Another thing that's offensive to the world, God created the world in six days and then rested. 
not evolution. Here's another one. Mother Nature does not exist. (laughs) But there's a God and Father of all creation, and He does exist. Whether we believe in Him or not, He is still there. Our Our belief does not create him. He alone is God. God holds the world in his hands. The world, uh, here's another one. The world will never end until God allows it to end because it's his world. And it will end when he wants it to end the way he has it ordained to end. Which, by the way, uh, according to scripture, is caused by heat so hot it melts the earth. That's just before Jesus creates a new heaven and a new earth. (laughs) There's more. There's more. Hang on. Let me see how offensive we can be with the truth of God's Word and the fact that it's completely exclusive. Life is precious because for no other reason than life comes from God. It's God, and it's His glory that is in everything and makes everything valuable. He's the only one that makes it valuable. God. God, who deserves all glory. It's not a man's choice. It's not a woman's choice to end a life before a child is born. Where, where do we get that notion? We get that because we think we are God, but we are not. Since God created the world and created us and he owns it all, he's over all, he gets to say even and wants to have say even what we do with our own bodies. Our own bodies should be used to glorify God only. How about this? God hates sin. The scripture is very clear on this. God hates the taking of innocent lives and abortion. God hates sexual immorality. He hates sex outside of marriage. This is God. You say, man, Rob, how dare you say these? I I didn't write it. I'm not God. We cleared that up at the very beginning. I'm not David or Job or anybody. I'm just just Rob. (laughs) Uh, he, He wrote and made creation. He wrote his word by his Holy Spirit. God's judgment will eventually be revealed on all types of fornication and idolatry. He hates drunkenness, and he hates rebellion. He hates liars. Psalm says that God is angry at sinners every day. Did you know that? Angry at sinners every day. There's a billboard that was put out by a church here in Texas, and it says, God is not angry at you. God is not angry at you. God is not angry. He loves you. But this is kind of misleading. If a holy God is not angry at sin, why did Jesus Christ die? The far more offensive truth is that, yes, God is angry at sinners, but you can repent and be saved because in his love, he's made a way for you to renounce your sin and be forgiven. This is a miracle. We can be reunited with God. But if God has no wrath and isn't angry, then why would I ever repent in the first place? And why did Jesus have to die such a brutal death on the cross? If God has no wrath or judgment, why did Jesus say, I came to judge? Uh... This is why salvation only comes to those who are willing to repent of their sins, turn from their sins, and plead with God for forgiveness. Paul made this list of all these sins in one of his letters, and then he said, uh, of which were many of you. In other words, a lot of you were just like this, but you've been saved, you've been clean, you've been redeemed. So we don't, we're not above anybody. As a matter of fact, as Christians, we're below everybody because we realize we need to repent and be forgiven. The grace of God is wonderful, but it's only wonderful when you realize how much we need it. Just in mentioning the last few things over the last few moments, you can see where the world would absolutely despise the truth of Christianity, right? To those who are being saved, it's a sweet fragrance of the truth, possibilities, and hope. But to those who are perishing, it's a pungent odor. 
that reminds them of their own sinfulness, their own anger towards God, who they shake their fist at, wondering why they should ever have to repent. So, of course, in this world, we will be persecuted. We're living in a world where Christians are mostly unwilling to speak the truth, even the truth in love, but rather we we try to get the world on our own side to cozy up to them so that we can then somehow they could, you know, receive the gospel without being offended. We don't want to offend anybody, but the gospel in and of itself is absolutely offensive to my pride. We, I think we've got to be offended. I mean, at the core of who we are, so that then we can ask God for forgiveness. But in a culture where everything's tolerated and no one's offended and we don't want to offend anybody, there's very little persecution. I'm telling you, if we live in the truth, love the truth, we're going to face persecution and trials. Our life should be filled with grace and truth. We should speak with great love and care. We should pray, be concerned. But the fact is that there is truth that is offensive to the world and it's exclusive truth. We're not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God to those who are being saved. So, we can expect trials. Then, we can rejoice in them because we get to suffer just like Jesus suffered. Thirdly, the Apostle Peter tells us that we should think about the cause of our trials. Listen to verse uh, 15 through 18. He says, Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he's not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. And then he talks about the judgment beginning with the household of God. I'll mention that here in a minute. So here the Apostle Peter's making a distinction and saying to evaluate your suffering and make sure that you're not suffering because you're sinning, which all of us have suffered under our own sin. That's easy. You repent. You ask God to solve it many times. He just forgives you every time. And I've seen in my own life where I don't even pay the full penalty in my life of all of my bad decisions. If you're suffering right now because of evil, then you need to repent of that, turn from that, and move towards God. That's possible because of Jesus Christ. That's, that's a no-brainer, as they say. Evaluate your suffering. Make sure you're not suffering because you're sinning. Okay, you shouldn't suffer as a thief or a murderer or an evildoer. You shouldn't be a troublesome meddler. This is the only time in the New Testament that this phrase is used. It simply means one who meddles in things alien to his calling. Troublesome meddler. Somebody who meddles in somebody else's business, meaning that someone is an agitator, a troublemaker. I think we have a lot of, we've seen a lot of people like this, right? People whose allegiance should be first to Christ and his kingdom, and yet they forsake that in order to protest everything that's going on in culture. Like, we're going to correct everything that's happening in culture, some, some form of utopia. That is not what the scripture teaches People who mistakenly think that the kingdom of God is somehow governed by what happens in the United States of America or any other country. It's good for us to be reminded that the kingdom of God is not impacted, waiting for what's going to happen by our elections. His kingdom is going to come in spite of what happens in any nation. I'm reminded of what Paul wrote when he said, Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you. In another place, he wrote, For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. <laughs> now, such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. You can't get much clearer than that. I heard some of you aren't even working jobs. You're out there complaining. No, no. Be quiet. Work your job. 
be a good Christian person. Christians aren't to be agitating troublemakers in their places of work or in their culture. I've listed a lot of things about Christ, but that doesn't mean you go stand on the, the, the you know, go, go, go in the break room and stand on the table and tell everybody they're going to hell if they don't know Jesus. That's not what we're saying. You're not to be an agitator or a troublemaker. But if we suffer as a Christian, we're suffering for the gospel's sake. Peter in this passage was referring to a political activism and civil agitation, as you can imagine would be the temptation among people in the Roman Empire. Remember that the persecution that was taking place, he was talking about, was Romans against Christians, and he was telling Christians, basically, it's not, you're not going to take to the streets, you're going to live a Christian life. Now brace yourself for this next statement, folks. Social justice concerns are not equal to gospel concerns. How many Christians do you know that are absolutely consumed with the gospel of Jesus Christ and the saving of people's eternal souls? I mean, how many Facebook fights are people defending the gospel? Not that we should approach it this way, but let's face it. Most of the passionate comments and posts that we read from Christians are politically motivated and not gospel-centric. Oh, I just wish that we would be as excited, thrilled, passionate, and up in arms over the gospel, don't you? I'm afraid in our culture, most of the Christians that we know are consumed with, instead of the salvation of the lost, but rather the saving of a culture from some type of global peace brought by social justice. That will never happen. There will be no peace until Christ returns and brings peace himself. Here again, I'm not saying we don't love our neighbor and do everything to care for our neighbor. I'm just saying social justice is not on par with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus didn't die on the cross the cross for social justice. He died on the cross to save us and reconcile us to God, which is far and above way more important than anything else we could ever uh, uh, pursue. The world will grow darker and darker until he returns. At the same time, the gates of hell won't defeat the church, we're told. And where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. The apostle Peter here is saying that we should suffer as those who are concerned with the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we should not be suffering because we're thieves or murderers or those who meddle in the affairs that have nothing to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? These words are timely for those Christians, and uh, they're pretty timely for us today as well. Quick mention of the last part of the passage I said, as he said, talking about the church, the Apostle Peter was simply saying that if we, if we suffer of those, as those who are being saved, it really doesn't compare to the suffering that's going to happen when God judges sinners. We can make this comparison in our mind. We can give thanks that although we're suffering, yes, we're becoming more like Christ. We can be thankful that we're not as those who are going to suffer God's wrath and judgment. In other words, no matter what you're going through right now in your walk with Christ on this earth— This light and momentary affliction can't be compared to the glory that we're going to receive. And if we're entering into the kingdom of God with this difficulty, imagine how difficult it will be for those who end up under the judgment of Almighty God not being saved. This should weigh heavy on us and remind us to pray for those who don't know Him, and we should be daily ready to give an answer to those who don't know Him with great love and care living a salty life before those around us. Fourthly and lastly, got to move quickly here. The Apostle Peter tells us in our attitude towards trials, we should trust completely in God. So he's told us we should expect the trials. Don't be surprised. We should rejoice in the trials. We should think about the cause of our trials. And lastly, we should trust God completely in our trials. 
He says, therefore, those who also suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. This last one, it's got to be at least as difficult as the second one that says we should rejoice. By the way, this idea of entrusting our soul to God is the same word that was used by Christ on the cross when he said, into your hands I commit my spirit. It's good to be completely owned by God. We've been purchased, not with perishable things, but with the very blood of Christ. We've been bought back. We've been adopted by God. We are His. We're entrusting our soul into His hands. That idea, by the way, of entrusting our soul into His hands, this is a banker's term. refers to a deposit for safekeeping. God can be trusted with everything we entrust to Him. No one can be trusted more than God. No one else is a faithful creator but God. He can be completely trusted to do what is right by us as we are committed to him. In uh, John MacArthur's commentary, he points out Psalm 31 as a rich example of a believer's entrusting himself to God. I'm going to read a few highlighted passages of Psalm 31, and I would encourage you to pray through the entire chapter, Psalm 31. Someday this week, maybe, as you dedicate and entrust your soul to a loving Almighty God, especially if you're going through trials and suffering, I'm closing with this. Here's what it says for, in different parts of Psalm 31, I've just highlighted portions of it. For your namesake, you will lead me and guide me. You will pull me out of the net which they have secretly laid for me, for you are my strength. You have known the troubles of my soul. You have set my feet in a large place. I am forgotten as a dead man out of mind. I am like a broken vessel, but as for me, I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. You hide them in a secret place of your presence from the conspiracies of man. You keep them secretly in a shelter from the strife of tongues. Blessed be the Lord. For he has made marvelous his loving kindness to me in a besieged city. Honor the Lord, all you his godly ones. The Lord preserves the faithful and fully recompenses the proud doer. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who hope in the Lord. This is my prayer for you that in the midst of your trials, you wouldn't be surprised, but rather you would rejoice. You would think of how this suffering is never without the presence of God and that you would entrust this infinitely trustworthy God with your soul and with every part of your life. May you see him in the midst of your trials and rejoice and give thanks and trust. And as a result, may we grow in Christ-likeness. Amen. Thanks for listening. Praying for you. God bless you.